What I can see in the silhouette of their beams, one of them has something in his hand, like a wrench or crowbar. So I knew he could have me in a secluded area real quick. He just starts repeating that I absolutely have to go outside with him. Listener discretion advised. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. From Disturbed Media, I'm your host, Chad, and this is Disturbed. This episode is sponsored by Wondery's Generation Y podcast, where hosts and true crime fanatics Justin and Aaron explore hundreds of unsolved murders and conspiracy theories. Listen to Wondery's Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. Now just a little bit of business before we get into it. We have a new email that's strictly for your story submissions. My story at disturbedpodcast.com is where you can now email your true experiences. And for anything else podcast related, if you have any questions, comments, ideas, you can send those to chad at disturbedpodcast.com. And lastly, if you have a little bit shorter story and you want to tell it in your own words, you can call those into the hotline at 701 354 3667. So thanks for continuing to send in your stories and experiences. And with that, let's get rolling. Our first experience comes to us from Reddit user Plutonium Horse, and we learn why you shouldn't park on the side of the road to sleep. Performing this experience is Tom Aglio. This took place around two years ago. I was driving to work a five-hour drive. It was already dark. About three hours of driving, I started to get tired. I bought myself a coffee and some snacks at a gas station and went on. But snacks and coffee can only keep you awake for so long, and I started to feel tired again. This part of the road was nothing but thick, dark pinewood forest around me. No other cars on the road, nothing, only insects smashing my windshield now and then, and empty road. I was now extremely tired, and at one point I nearly drove off the road for almost falling asleep. I have to sleep now. I can't wait for a gas station. I need to sleep as soon as I see a place where I can park my car, anything. When I'm tired, I fall asleep really fast. If I'm tired enough, I can fall asleep in the middle of a sentence when I'm talking. So it's a bit urgent for me to find a place where I can stop. It felt like an hour, but probably just five minutes go by and I spot this little pocket in the road. It's like a parking space for quick stops, like peeing, switching drivers, or stuff like that. Not even a real resting area. I stopped here, turned down my windows to check if I heard any weird noises, total silence. I turned up the windows again. Nothing bad is going to happen. I haven't seen a car for like 30 minutes. This road is empty. If someone is checking out my car, I bet it's the cops checking on me if I'm alright. I leave my keys in the ignition and I lock the doors, just to be safe. I adjust my seat a bit to make it more comfortable to sleep in and I take off my shoes and put them on the passenger seat on the right. It's so nice to close my eyes and instantly I fall asleep. I don't know why, but something wakes me up. I can't really see anything, some kind of bright light hits me in the eyes. 
First, I thought it was a flashlight, but then I realized it's the high beams from another car in my rearview mirror that is blinding me. I look in my left mirror and I see a dude walking up beside my car. Maybe he wants help with something? Should I make it clear to him that I'm in here? He's right beside my left back door. Should I step out and ask what he's doing? I didn't have to. The dude proceeds to jerk and pull on my left back door. I almost shit my fucking pants when I realized that he's trying to force his way into my car. My seat is adjusted for me to lay down and I pushed it back max. I can't reach the pedals which makes it impossible for me to drive my car. I slam the car horn and it breaks the silence with a roar and the dude jumps. That gives me like two seconds to push my seat to reach the pedals. But it's still way out of adjustment so I'm kind of pulling myself to the steering wheel because my seat is laying flat and isn't supporting my back. Anyway, I start my car and drive off with a cloud of smoke from my screeching tires. It's hard driving a car with nothing holding up your upper body but I managed. As I leave, I look in the rear mirror and I can see how the dude stands there and looks at me. And I can see two more guys coming up beside him. What I can see in the silhouette of their beams, one of them has something in his hand, like a wrench or crowbar. I drive super fast, way over the speed limit. My whole body was trembling with adrenaline and fear. I drove like that for like 30 minutes, then I stopped at a gas station to fix my seat and put my shoes on again. I figured out I was only sleeping for like 10 minutes. Well, I didn't have to sleep until I got to my destination, which is surrounded by heavy-duty fencing and the building has an alarm. I told my boss the next day, and he said they actually have problems with what we call it in Sweden, road pirates. Criminals that force you to stop on the road and rob you of everything, including your car, in that specific area. It could just be three nice dudes that wanted to check if I was okay, then why didn't they just knock in my driver's window? The thing in his hands could be a big flashlight. Be safe. If you'd like to hear these episodes without the ads, get additional bonus episodes and your own shout out, you can become a premium listener at disturbedpodcast.com support. Next up, we hear from an interesting Reddit username, Too Sad to Masturbate. And we learn that not every Uber driver can be trusted. Performing this experience is Rhiannon Mauschel. Sorry, this is a bit long. I know this isn't a therapist's office, but this has bothered me for a long time and I wanted to just get it off my chest. This happened June 2018 in Portland, Oregon. I understand I acted like an idiot in this situation. Since then, I have become much more observant, cautious, and honestly, much more paranoid. I went dancing with friends, was really drunk by midnight. Unfortunately, this was back when I had little money and I realized you could save money by eating very little before going out and it would take far fewer drinks to get drunk. So I was drunk. I barely remember my friend ordering me an Uber home. My phone was dead, of course. I can vaguely recall them helping me into the car and telling me to get home safe. I don't remember greeting the driver or the first minute or so. But soon after getting in, he asked how my night was and if I smoked. Honestly, I was just thinking about bed at this point, so I sort of just slurred out that I did sometimes. He then offered me a joint, and this is the first moment I get sort of nervous and begin paying attention. I tell him something like I'm really tired and just ready to get home. I think he said something about it being an Indica-based joint and it made for great sleep. Once again, I say something not exactly like no, but not a yes, which he takes as a yes, I'll take that joint now. 
Reminder, I'm still drunk enough I can barely see straight or speak clearly. So when he says, okay, well, I have to cancel the ride really quick because I can't give it to you while I'm on the clock, or something to that effect, it takes me a second to realize how dangerous that is. And by the time I start to say something, he has canceled the ride and pulls over. We were in an area just east of the Hawthorne Bridge, I think, and it was totally secluded. Some empty parking lots, a closed auto body shop, no one in sight. It's starting to hit me I'm now in the car, not with an Uber driver, but with some stranger. I can't call anyone, and he's trying to give me weed that could have anything in it. For the next minute or so, we're pretty quiet, or I just can't remember any small talk he tried to make because I was beginning to panic. And every time he handed me the joint, I would fake hits, just breathing it into my mouth and not into my lungs. I felt tired, clumsy, and weak. That kind of drunk when you're almost at the point of nausea. And I knew I couldn't do much more of anything to defend myself at that point. I remember vividly being fixated for a moment on the fact I didn't even have a pair of keys to defend myself with, as my building used fobs for just about everything and I didn't take my mail key with me. As I'm freaking out, I look up to see this guy is sort of noticing, and I make eye contact with him in the mirror. He was staring at me, but I couldn't read his expression. Finally, he says something along the lines of, well, let's get out of here. I tell him I'll just call another Uber to get home, thinking at this point it might even be safer to walk. And he says, no, I still have your address. I'll just take you home. For a moment, I was relieved. I guess I just wanted to believe him so badly. I tried to calm myself down, thinking he actually hadn't done anything threatening. Maybe he was just your typical stoner guy and I'm overreacting. At this time, I lived on PSU campus in downtown Portland in the southwest area of the city. He is driving me north on the east side of the river. There are several bridges to our left, and as he keeps moving north, he has several opportunities to take an exit to hop over the river and get me back downtown. He keeps skipping them. We keep passing bridge after bridge that could get me home. Up in northeast Portland, there are some large industrial areas that can get very isolated at night. And Portland in general is surrounded by lots of forests, so I knew he could have me in a secluded area real quick. After he passes like the fourth exit for a bridge, pretty sure it was the Broadway bridge, I've been racking my brain for a way to make him actually take me home and say something to the effect of, hey, my boyfriend is waiting for me at home, which was true though I said it in a very meek way. My driver says nothing, but he did take the next exit for the bridge and basically hung a giant U-turn that started taking me home. Even as we're on the west side of town heading south, I'm still shaking and have my hand on the door handle, thinking about just hopping out at a red light the closer we get to my apartment. My phone is completely dead and he honestly still has several chances to hop onto nearby highways and speed out of the city. We're getting pretty close to my apartment now, and I'm once again trying to convince myself I'm being paranoid about some stoner that can't navigate the city, even though a few minutes before I was so scared I was crying. So once we get about two blocks from my apartment, I lie and tell him it's easiest to stop here and he can let me out. Again, he doesn't say anything, but does slow the car. I'm flooded with relief and even feel myself smile. But when I go to open the door, it's locked. I try to lift the lock mechanism manually, but it won't budge. 
I look at him instinctively to see what's up, and he's got his head turned almost fully toward me, shoulders still facing the road, smiling at me. The worst fucking smile I've ever seen. It looked so mocking, and it just did not reach his eyes at all. I just started crying and asking him to open the door. I was so freaked out and still very drunk. And thank God he did. I will never forget the sensation of vulnerability. Not just being drunk in his car with no way to contact anyone. But even as I got out of the car, I kept feeling like he would somehow grab the back of my shirt and pull me back in. (laughs) As silly as that sounds. When I got home, I found out my boyfriend had actually gone out with friends last minute and wasn't even there. He wouldn't have even known till much later if I'd gotten back safe. The next day, I convinced myself I was freaking out over nothing, which I still realize could be the case. But in my gut, I had truly felt in danger the night before. Technically, this guy could have been totally harmless, but I still think I should have texted my friend and had her report him. The big thing that made me think of this was recently hearing about how Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, would go for practice runs, picking up hitchhikers and seeing if he could get the passengers, potential victims, to trust him, or how far out of their comfort zone he could push them without them saying anything. Obviously, this guy wasn't Ed Kemper, but I hate wondering if that night was a practice run of sorts for my Uber driver. Thanks to whoever listens to this, I'm at a point in my life where I'm realizing how much danger I put myself in when I was younger and just how depressed as hell I was. And it has made me both surprised and deeply grateful that I'm still here. In Wondery's Generation Y podcast, hosts and true crime fanatics Justin and Aaron explore hundreds of unsolved murders and conspiracy theories. They dig through the evidence, give their perspective, and ask the hard questions. And in one of their latest episodes, Aaron and Justin profile a mysterious death from 2004. Alonzo Brooks was a young black man who went to a party with some friends in a rural area near their homes. But while his friends left the party without him, Alonzo never returned home. A month later, He was found dead with no obvious evidence of foul play. And nearly two decades later, in July 2020, the FBI reclassified his manner of death as homicide. There's even evidence that his death was a hate crime. So what does the FBI know? And how can they solve this almost 20-year murder case? Now, the Alonzo Brooks episode is fantastic. It's an in-depth look at Alonzo's life and what could have led to him not leaving the party alive. If you love trying to solve mysterious cases, this is the one for you. So listen to Wondery's Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture. 
www.thebestbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbetsbet
Well, she cusses him for a minute. He basically tells her to get out of the store. She slammed the door open. I thought the glass was going to break from how hard she had slammed it. And then she stalks out of the store and down the driveway. I keep an eye on her and continue to watch as she makes her way back up to the interstate and then starts up the northbound on-ramp. Almost a year passes, and I'm in my bedroom less than a week before my 16th birthday. I hear my dad yelling from the living room, Son, get your ass in here and look at this! I quickly run to the living room and see my dad pointing at the TV and look at the mugshot of the lady up on the screen and immediately remember the lady who had been in the store. Turns out, I had almost given a car ride to Aileen Warnos, who was later convicted of being a serial murderer and then later put to death. Still have nightmares about what could have happened. So I've recently discovered a podcast I think you guys are really going to love. It's called The Secret Room with Ben Ham, and it's all about the secrets no one ever tells. And each episode, Ben has an intimate conversation with someone new who tells their secret. I've been working my way through all the episodes, and I just can't stop. Take a listen. What's the one thing you've never told anyone? People just like you tell all in a podcast called The Secret Room. If you're a True Story fan and you cannot get enough of people's most intimate dreams, desires, and shame, you will love The Secret Room. Like Mila's deathbed confession that her daughter's absent father is a movie star. I wish I could tell someone who the father is while I'm still on Earth. Or Jen's secret love affair with a man on death row. It's turned my world upside down and something he just did has devastated me. Or the way that Joey falls in love with inanimate objects. I know people who were in relationships with construction equipment. People all around you carry the most amazing secrets. You're invited to the secret room for a front row seat to spectacular stories that will touch you, jar you, and amaze you. I'm Ben Ham, your host. Search for The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. And finally, we check in with Reddit user SmallWaifu, and we discover that following protocol can be a lifesaver. Performing this experience is Nicole Doolin. So this happened roughly about two years ago. I worked at a hotel which had 50 rooms between three floors. I was the only employee in the building after about 5 p.m. It should be noted I am a girl. The hotel is on the farther side of the city, but it's considered to be on the nicer side. So a lot of companies will send their workers to us for room and board instead of the shadier motels on the opposite side of the city. Some of them are great guests. Others completely trashed everything. But that happens everywhere, I suppose. The layout of the building was pretty simple. You pull up to the front entrance, enter the foyer, and the front desk lobby is right through a set of automatic doors. Right across the hall from the lobby was a staircase leading up to the second floor, and to the left was our elevators to the second and third floor. The first floor only has rooms on one side to compensate for our pool, workout room, and breakfast area dining room, lobby and the office rooms all being on the opposite side. 
The upper floors have rooms on each side, with the third floor having the most rooms. Typically, the third floor, the highest, we kept only for business and long stays. Second floor was reserved for short stays or bigger parties, and the first floor we kept open for elders who have wheelchairs or walkers, or people who come in late at night for a one-night stay. I promise this is relevant to the story. Anyway, it was getting towards the last few hours of my shift. It was slow that night, aside from a few work groups I had checked in a few hours earlier. I noticed a raggedy, rusted, and beat-up black pickup truck pulling up into the brightly lit car pit, so I got my paperwork ready for check-in. A guy gets out, completely covered in dirt. I figured he just got off of work as most guys come in covered in dirt or oil. I do specifically remember that he reeked, which isn't too out of the norm either. Entirely, I just chalked it up to him being an oil field or construction worker. I got his credentials. His name was Michael and scanned it into the computer. He also was reluctant to leave his vehicle information with me, but I explained if he didn't, his vehicle was at risk of being towed by morning. I thought he caved just because he was only going to be here for the night. Michael requested a second floor room close to the lobby staircase so he could have easy access to the front doors for smoking. Not out of the norm either. After taking his payment, I set up his room keys. I explained parking, policies, and explained how he can get to his room, which was right up the staircase and the door was on the opposite wall. He had a few bags with him and he went upstairs. Almost immediately, he comes back down the stairs and accuses me of giving him broken room keys. I had to explain to him if he put them next to his phone or anywhere near a magnet, potentially in his wallet, the keys will deactivate. I did offer to take him upstairs and open the room for him to make sure the new set of keys worked, and they did. He walked into his room by himself, shut the door. So with that, I was on my way back down to the lobby. When I got back in the office, something odd caught my eye on the cameras. He hadn't left the building, but his car wasn't in the front anymore. He didn't mention anything about having another person with him. If there was, we are supposed to charge a $10 fee per extra person. The side doors don't open unless you have a room key or are on the inside of the hotel. So I started to watch the cameras to make sure he wasn't trying to sneak people in. About 20 minutes pass and I notice nothing happening except him coming down the stairs. I smile politely and he goes outside. He stays outside for about 10 minutes, just standing in the carport. I can see it on camera. Now, while I thought that was a little weird, I just chalked it up to him taking a smoke. I stopped paying attention after a while and started to file my paperwork that was due before my shift ended. Michael ran back into the hotel, cigarettes still in his mouth. I instructed him he must take his cigarette outside and put it out. I told him prior we do not allow smoking inside the building. He just threw it on the ground and put it out with his shoe. He turned his attention towards the TV and ended up sitting in the lobby for an ungodly amount of time. He kept glancing towards the door, which made me uncomfortable. During this time, the friendly demeanor he had at check-in completely disappeared. 
He seemed paranoid and agitated now. He would whisper to himself, I couldn't hear what. After about 30 minutes of him doing this, I instructed him to go back up to his room because I cannot have people in the lobby when I am working on closing procedures. It was a lie, but ownership allows us to make up reasons if we are uncomfortable with a guest's presence. Michael asked me to take him up to his room because he is uncomfortable and scared. I explained that I am unable to do that for safety reasons. What I could do was watch him go up the stairs on camera and he could call down to the office on his room phone when he arrived into his room. I was just trying to be friendly and get him upstairs as quick as I could. He goes upstairs, but immediately comes back down and informs me that he forgot where his room was and I would need to show him. I told him I can't leave the office or lobby, but I can explain it to him where his room was because it was super simple. He was continuing his whispers. This time it was about him losing his phone. I didn't pay any mind to it. After explaining to Michael where his room was, he went back upstairs and I heard the door slam shut. It echoed throughout the second and first floors and it gave me chills for some reason. Almost immediately, he comes back down and starts yelling at me, telling me I stole his cell phone, that I'm planning his demise, and I need to find his phone. This was completely bogus as I haven't left the office since making sure his room key worked. He asked me for help and I just wanted him to go away. So I slipped a screwdriver in my pocket just in case he tried to attack me and I began rummaging through the lobby couches looking for his phone. I didn't find it, but I did find his credit card, which he also began accusing me of stealing. I stood my ground and said if he can't respect me in my place of work, I can call the police and request they escort him into his room or off the facility. He got angrier, snatched his card from my hands and went back outside. After about 20 minutes, he comes back inside, he is calmer, but he asks if I would please go outside with him because there is something wrong with his car. After I absolutely refuse, he tells me that I need to go outside. That it's not fair he's the only person out there working on his car and he just needs some fucking help. I had to explain I am not allowed to accompany a guest outside of the building. He just starts repeating that I absolutely have to go outside with him. Now, I have anxiety, and I tend to let my mind roam over wide horizons, and this was no different. I was about to have a panic attack, so I called the owners and asked them what I should do. It was my first hotel job, and although I have tons of freedom doing my job, I still want to know how to properly handle these situations. The owner told me if I am uncomfortable and suspect he is under the influence, or a danger to myself or himself, I have full reign to call the police, have them ban him from the property. I asked if they could just keep an eye on the cameras they have access to at home because he is acting weird. I locked all the lobby doors and made sure the side and fire exits were all properly secured and closed so no one could sneak in. I did this while doing this on the phone with my boss because I was scared to leave the office by myself. After getting back behind the office, I locked the door 
and I just brace for him to come back inside. My boss tells me to just watch the cameras and keep my cell phone nearby just in case I have to call for help. Meanwhile, I noticed on the cameras I couldn't see Michael anymore. I didn't know where he parked, but I damn sure wasn't going to go looking. But what I did notice is there was another vehicle driving through our parking lot. I called the hotel next door to ask if the car was on their cameras, too, and I was informed it was an unknown vehicle to their records. It was unknown to mine as well. This just shot my anxiety up even higher. The car would drive around the back of the building, to the front, but avoid the carport, turn, and then do the same to the building next door. The parking lot was almost empty, so I know they weren't looking for a parking spot. The car keeps going, and I'm watching it on the camera so focused that I didn't notice Michael come back inside, telling Michael he either needs to go up to his room or vacate the premises. He just continues to yell at me, saying, I need to go outside with him. He won't move out from in front of the entrance. I imagine he was staying within view of whoever else he kept looking back at. Then randomly, I see him sprint across the parking lot and out of the camera view. I also didn't see the car anymore after that. Since it was practically the end of my shift, I somehow managed to get everything done just in time for the next shift to arrive. I was so glad to see her, I almost cried. I explained to her what happened and that the owners want her to keep the lobby doors locked. We put up signs explaining our doors were broken and due to safety reasons, guests would have to call for entry or use the side entrances for their room. I also deactivated Michael's room keys and told the next shift girl not to let him back. If he shows up, to call the police because he is a security risk. I made sure she watched me get into my Uber ride after triple checking the vehicle and driver matched what my phone said. Since I was a regular customer of the driver, he asked why I was so riled up. I asked him to drive through the parking lot with his doors closed so I could see if Michael's truck or the other vehicle I saw driving across the parking lot were anywhere near the buildings, and they weren't. I have no idea what happened to them. I had my boyfriend come stay the entire evening shift with me just in case he came back, because I was told by my bosses that he never came to get his stuff. He wouldn't pick up the phone for calls either. Nothing happened that night or any other night, except for a month later. Michael came in asking about his stuff and if he could get a room. I refused his room and luckily other people were with me in the lobby and in the office. I had our maintenance man go retrieve his items and explained he is no longer allowed on the property. If we saw him, the police would be called and he would be arrested for trespassing. Again, this wasn't true, but we didn't want him coming back at all. I noticed Michael had a different vehicle this time. It was a newer model SUV, and it was maroon. It matched neither his beat-up black pickup truck or the dark-colored sedan I saw driving in circles. If there was anything that sat with me even after all this time, it was that he remembered my name. He addressed me by my name when he walked up to the counter. And at first I thought, oh yeah, my name is part of my uniform, until I realized I forgot to put on my name tag that day. After that, I refused to wear one in the hotel. Management let me create a fake name and wear that from that point on. 
It took me a while to feel safe in the building again while I was alone. I constantly had my boyfriend with me while I worked the evening shift. There is a chance the guy and the circling vehicle are unrelated, but my anxiety and the aura I got from Michael that night, it didn't feel good or right. So, Michael, let's not meet. Ever. Again. To share your true experience, just email us at mystory@disturbedpodcast.com or call it in at 701-354-3667. No story is too big or too small. And if you love our show, consider leaving a five-star rating and review. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. And help us grow by sharing the show with a few friends. Music by Carl Casey at WhiteBatAudio and Co.ag. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.